Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you're just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat. My baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I have with me the amazing Luke Chivers, and he is going to talk to us all about his battle with bulimia. Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's good to be on the show. Now, I would like to begin with you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your journey, a bit of an overview, so they've got an idea of, yeah, who you are and what your experience with bulimia has been. Yeah, thanks, uh, Millie. So, look, for me, it, it all kind of started when I was about, I'd say, 19 years of age. Growing up, I was a bit of a typical type A personality. And for listeners that don't know quite what that means, it was um, striving for A pluses and nothing short of, and very much an overachiever, which, look, throughout high school, um, I think on the whole, came from quite a healthy place. And it meant that I could do lots of cool things and get lots of good opportunities. But what I didn't quite realize was as time went on, I became almost more and more defined by achievement. Um, I defined myself by that achievement and, um, and strive for success. When I left high school, I really grappled with finding myself. Um, I had not been head boy anymore, which I was at my final year of high school. Went to the big world of university without this badge and label and almost had to redefine myself. Um, so I threw myself at my studies and again, yeah, really, really strove for those good grades and scholarships. Uh, in my second year of university, I got stuck into running, which had always been a passion of mine and a really healthy outlet for me to release stress and get those good endorphins. Very quickly, I found the more I got into it, the more it started to consume me. And like I did with university, with throwing myself at it, it went to quite an extreme point. Um, I participated in a marathon, came second place, which most people would find to be one thing to do a marathon is fantastic, but then to, to, to achieve second would be bloody awesome. For me, I didn't think it was good enough. So I, I vowed to myself that I'd do the race in a year's time, the same race, but I had to come first regardless of whatever. Uh, so I got a coach, started training vigorously for a marathon. And as part of that, nutrition came into play. So started looking at what foods I was eating or not eating. For the first time in my life, I learned about things like calories, carbohydrates. Uh, unbeknownst to me up until then, I didn't even know what those things meant. I would just eat 
for eating purposes. And for a wee while, I, I had it in a really um, healthy place. It was fueling my running. But as the weight started to drop off, and I was already quite a lean guy, there was a sense of euphoria and almost stillness that I felt when I started to lose weight. And, um, and I started to become actually faster. I was doing some really good times. But as the weeks and particularly the months went on, I noticed my behavior was becoming more and more abnormal. Um, I started weighing myself initially just to make sure I was getting enough fluid into my system after doing a long run, but then quite quickly became fixated on the number on the scale. And again, that actually started to define my self-worth for that period of time. Just before the race, I mean, I was weighing myself about six or seven times a day and foods which would usually be foods which should be integrated into my diet to fuel, particularly carbohydrates and fruits and vegetables, started to become something I became incredibly fearful of. I participated in the marathon. I, I came first place and I felt no sense of joy. All I did was crack the whip on myself, saying I could have done better time, I could have done this hill faster. I did realize, thankfully, at that stage that things were getting a wee bit out of hand. Um, and, you know, if I'm not satisfied for winning a marathon, what's really going to fill that void? So I thought to myself, right, I'll come off this diet, I'll have a break from running, and it will all be fixed. Uh, the first meal I went out with some friends for, for one of my, my birthday, it was like the moment I started to eat normal foods again, and I say that in inverted commas, I just almost had this 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 flick of a switch where everything on the table was what I wanted to eat. And I went home after my birthday dinner and just gorged. I ate everything in my pantry to the point of feeling as though my stomach was going to rupture. The next morning, I kind of joked about it with friends. I thought it was kind of funny that I'd gone home and lost control. But five days later, I was caught in this vicious cycle of binging and then purging by making myself sick up to 20 times a day. And it really just spiraled every day. It was just getting worse of spending more and more money, um, going to the supermarket. As I made reference to, uh, my studies were really important to me. I suddenly found that the idea of going to university was too hard to fathom because it would mean that I couldn't binge and purge and it interrupted my behavior. Um, and my day literally revolved around getting up eating excessive amounts of food despite every effort not to, disposing of that food, and then abusing things like laxatives and going for um, seriously long runs on an empty stomach and doing it all over again. And um, yeah, it was, it was certainly pretty bleak, that's for sure. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that that achievement and that striving. And that was something that I really, really um, struggled with too. And it's like that idea that nothing is ever good enough. I remember, you know, with your marathon example, I remember, you know, topping the business school, for example, which at the at the beginning had been the goal, right? And then I remember doing that. And then it was like, it, what you know, that, that voice in your head saying, no, it's not good enough. And, you know, it wasn't mm. mum and dad wanted to celebrate that with me. No, didn't want to celebrate it because in my mind, it was like I could do better. It's like it, it, nothing is ever good enough for the eating disorder. It's just that constant, constant mm. striving for more. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to see how that manifests differently for different people. Absolutely. And look, I've said this quite a few times that for me, while it took me a long time to realize this, um, it almost had nothing to do with the food. I think there was this climatic point of 
Um, I had insecurities, a lack of self-worth. I was struggling with various aspects of life that were out of my control. I was so desperate to control them that it just so happened to be this perfect equation and almost like a recipe where I was feeling good from running, had a goal. Um, that was something I felt I could control. Um, I could control the number on the scale. I could control what did or didn't go into my body. And people started to make comments as I lost weight. Um, and it was interesting. At the start, it was a, crikey, Luke, have you lost some weight? You're looking, you're looking really fit and lean. But it started to shift into a, crikey, Luke, have you lost some weight? As in a real sense of concern that people were starting to see the weight just drop off my body. And there was genuine um, worry there by people around me. And I, I say that because all of this, as I made reference to before, offered this sense of rush, euphoria, feel good, which I think if I had at that same time been a bit of into the partying scene, I think alcohol could have easily become the issue. If I was gambling, um, I think gambling could have easily become the issue. The eating disorder stemmed from a place of wanting control and a sense of freedom from internal struggles that um, it served a purpose very, very well for a period of time, albeit very destructive. Yeah. No, and I think you're right. And I often, especially recently, have been talking more about the fact that at the core of it all, it is an addiction. Whether you're addicted to starving yourself, whether you're addicted to compulsive exercise, whether you're addicted to binging and purging, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, at the core of it is that addiction, that drive to feel that euphoria. And you're so right. That's exactly how I described, you know, how I felt in my eating disorder is that sense of euphoria. And as you said, that stillness, because you are so detached from yourself and your emotions and you're so numbed because you're engaging in these behaviors that are giving you, you know, that sense of just absolute numbness and you're consumed by it. So you can't really engage or enact with anything else. No, absolutely. And what I found remarkable was, of course, there is the psychological aspect of eating disorders, but we also kind of, of course, dismiss the physiological. And so it's only natural that when you eat less, there are physical side effects of that, which actually do cause you to feel good. You know, I, I've heard of cases where through things like anorexia nervosa, where the brain can actually shrink. So hence why it kind of, it supports that skewed thinking that takes place. When you make yourself unwell, it is horrifically damaging to your body, but it can release those feel-good endorphins and offers a sense of release. So there are very natural reasons at the same time for that behavior to continue. And the reality is we all know that exercise is really good for us in moderation. The very fact of, of getting that rush from running, it can get out of hand absolutely because it, it does feel good. Are there any long-term you know, health implications that you've got from binging and purging? Uh, yes, um, but thankfully and I don't dismiss the ones I do have, but thankfully I, I have been lucky in that regard too. The biggest cost for me, um, for my health, has been my uh, teeth. I um, knew there was always going to be a delayed bill coming up. Only in the past six months started that um, serious work, which now that I am well and, and know that my teeth going forward are going to be well looked after. Um, I mean, my dentist bill has been $10,000, which is huge. And, and if I'm honest, it was incredibly saddening to see the state of my teeth at only 27 years of age, literally having teeth fall out because of, of course, the enamel um, being eroded from the acidic 
nature of, of vomiting. I mean, thankfully, my heart's in good health. I did struggle with heart palpitations and my esophagus is in really good health as well. And, and, and overall, I'm, I'm in very good health and I'm delighted to say that um, because while you know I talk of these horrific, the horrific past, it is an absolute delight now to, to have come out the other side and and in a strange way, see the beauty of that. Oh, no, I can completely relate to that that feeling of there's a bit of a beauty in the breakdown sometimes, isn't there? When you reflect on it and you go, wow, A, I got through that and how incredible our bodies are. You know, the resilience to go through what we put them through when we're in the midst of that eating disorder, it floors me completely often when I think about how they are just so resilient. Once we just allow them to be and do what they need to do for us and we stop abusing them, it's it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, and I think I, I should note that too in that um, for people listening who might be struggling and feeling as though there's too much damage done. I don't believe in that. I mean, there, yes, are consequences for behaviour, but our bodies can heal. And I, I think it's, it's it's so special now that I'm delighted that I've got to a point after after really six or seven years um, of, of grappling with it to, to be able to care for my body, but it not become a fixation anymore. So to be able to eat a healthy, balanced diet where I'm mindful that I'm eating well, but I'm not eating well because I'm fixated on the fact of eating well, if that makes sense. I do it because it's it's now stemming from a place, although it sounds wishy-washy, but it is so true. It's from a place of self-love and care where we only get one of these bodies. And so when you get to that point of being in better mental health or mind health, I like to call it, it's it's... Yeah, it's it's pretty special to, to look after your body in that way. It's neat to get to that point when you when you have had such a destructive relationship with it to be able to get to that point where it's like I'm actually making these choices because I want to and I'm doing it because I care about my body and I'm not obsessed. And how amazing and freeing does that feel? Yeah. With yeah. exercise, how did you get to a place of having a healthy relationship with it? after having had such a destructive sort of obsessive one? Really good question, yeah. Um, I had to personally take a year off, 12 months of literally just no running, really. Um, I did other forms of exercise in terms of just, you know, walking and bits and pieces, but I didn't allow myself to just swap running out for anything else because I think there would be a huge risk of just forming that fixation again. So a clean break um, and doing a lot of work in that year, just taking a break doesn't solve the issue. Um, I was going through intensive therapy at that stage as well. So actually addressing the underlying issues that were driving that, that fixation. And then when I got back into it, it was taking it really slow. And even to this day, like I've signed up for, I think, one race ever since that one all those years ago. And I do that really just, I don't think I'd, I'd get that fixated now because I've been able to um, heal and work through the things that were driving it. But it's just a bit of a safety net for me. I run so much shorter distances these days. I still do a wee bit of long distance, but not so um, often. Work kind of gets in the way of me exercise these days <clears throat> anyway. But I think it's kind of nice. And in some ways, I almost allow that to happen. Whereas years ago, I wouldn't have allowed work to get in the way. I just would have got up earlier and run anyway. But I've also made running a more social and enjoyable thing with friends. So more often than not, I'll go for a run with a colleague after work. And it's actually a really great way for me to you know, fit in my exercise, but at the same time, actually catch up with a friend. I think that helps for me to keep running into a social, enjoyable, balanced activity rather than it being about how quick am I running 10 kilometres or 
Um, for instance, I don't even have a watch these days that tells me how many calories I've burnt because I don't really need to know that information. So why feed myself with it really? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why feed yourself with mm. things that you know? You, I mean, look, at the end of the day, mm. you might be in a space where, okay, you're not going to become obsessed about it right now, but maybe, you know, further down the track, it starts to creep in. I mean, we just don't know. We know how sneaky these disorders can be. And so I think protecting yourself like that is so, so important. And I think that social aspect of exercise is great. I mean, I was similar to you in terms of I took that real period off and just didn't do anything because I just knew that I couldn't. I couldn't do it in a healthy way. I was going to become obsessed. But I think it's such a beautiful thing when you can, when it is something that you really, really enjoy and you can reintroduce it in a healthy way and have it as part of your life again. Absolutely. And I think it really gets down to us as an individual having to be really honest with ourselves because as you say, eating disorders are so sneaky and you can fool people all you like into saying that I've got it under control, you know, no, I'm fine to get back into running or whatever exercise it is or behaviours, I'm fine, but you're only ever fooling yourself. And I know that I have to be really accountable to myself, but I also have some really good friends in my life now that I can be honest if I do find that there's been that little niggle, you know, of running and it's becoming a bit more of a, I'll keep going further and further. And I think that that's, that's incredibly important. And look, I do this with many things, not just even with exercise. So particularly with how I eat, um, if I find that I go out for lunch with friends or dinner and there's something I really want, but then there's the healthier option, I will not force myself, but I will um, encourage myself to have the thing that I actually really want. (laughs) There's not many instances I actually really do want a salad. (laughs) I would much rather have the burger and chips or whatever it might be. The reality is I'm not having burger and chips every night. So have the thing you really want. And it just helps me keep things in check and in moderation. Um, One thing that's been really important for me too, and I kind of made reference to there, is is actually eating around other people. So much of my consumption of food for a period of time was in secrecy. Tragically, sometimes literally in a cupboard, you know, I'd be eating food. For me to to break out of that and, and help to shave away the stigma and shame that I felt around eating, even if it was something deemed healthy, eating around people, good friends, and Fano family has uh, has been really, really important for me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is, it's such a, it can be such a challenge sort of in the beginnings of recovery, but it is something that is so important because there's so many life things that happen around food, you know, it's such a connection and, and community. And, and I think it's something that, you know, our eating disorders really strip us of. When you were, you know, really in the midst of of the binging and the purging, some people, it's just unimaginable, right? They just can't understand how you could possibly do that, right? And especially, you know, doing it up to 20 times a day. So can you try and explain what, you know, what's going on for you? Like, are you in a bit of a, a trance, a bit of a zone? Like, how does it feel when you're in that space? Yeah, it's really interesting because I knew someone when I was growing up who was suffering from bulimia and I could never understand why you'd make yourself sick. Most people, when you're unwell, that is the the part of being unwell, which we absolutely can't stand. It's an awful behaviour to engage with, you know, if you're you're physically unwell. 
Um, so I thought, why would anyone ever force themselves to do that? It just seems completely irrational. However, for me, it was there was this feeling of hollowness, and it was almost it's hard to articulate, but it felt as though if I didn't binge, the feelings that I was experiencing would become so overwhelming and so terrifying that it would break me like something really bad was going to happen. And I couldn't pinpoint what that bad thing was, but they just felt so painful or so scary and, and um, uncomfortable that the only way for me to suppress that it felt was to eat. And when I would eat, I'd become totally, almost like a trance, yeah, but fixated on the food. For people who might not understand, believe me that well, um, oftentimes that food's consumed in a large quantity of food. And I'm talking not just a couple of meals, for some people it could be huge portions. Um, I mean, I would be spending anywhere up to $100 a day on food and would be binging huge quantities, boxes and boxes of cereal until my stomach was in agony. And it would be so fast that I'd be eating um, to the point that you weren't even almost like tasting the food sometimes. You'd just be almost inhaling it. And in that moment, it would take all of those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and stresses away. It was just me and the food. That's all I was focused on. And in a strange way, food, as destructive as it was, it became a, a real comfort for me. But at the same time, because I was so desperate to suppress feelings but also have control, after binging, I suddenly felt like all that control had been stripped from me. So the only way to regain it, I felt, was to dispose of that food so then I didn't have to put on the weight um, after eating you know there was a huge fear and even though I knew that it was incredibly destructive and dangerous behavior it felt like it was almost when it autopilot I just had to do it so I would be spending hours trying to make myself sick I think there's a bit of a perception at times and it can be characterized like this for some people that they go out for dinner with friends and go to the bathroom make themselves unwell for me that was never the case it was never after a a usual everyday meal that I'd make myself unwell to therefore be skinnier it was always huge binge then spending literally two to three hours over a toilet to make myself dispose of that and I really just wouldn't stop until I felt like I'd got all out um but look I, I, i've said to people it was almost like for me that the supermarket was a drugstore i mean i would i would go in there and i'd be in such a trance anxiety um uh, uh, feeling these emotions bubble up that it was almost as though the moment i stepped foot into a supermarket that feeling of euphoria would start to kick in because i knew that i was about to get my almost like hit I would be heading straight for the confectionery aisle. Typically, sugar was really what I went for. It was almost the foods which I deemed to be bad, unhealthy, can't have foods were the ones my body so badly desired. And I would just purchase huge amounts of chocolate or you know sugary cereals and get out of there as soon as possible. Um, I'd always go to the self-checkout. I felt humiliated by the types of foods I was buying. Um, I remember feeling as I was dying inside when people made comments a couple of times of, crikey, are you having a big party at your house or something? Um, if it was a checkout operator. And little did they know, you know, it was me eating all that. And, and you know, there was other times, I, I, I've always been someone who's cared so much about other people. And I remember walking out of the supermarket, so many instances and in seeing a homeless person outside looking for a couple of bucks. And I was 
walking out with you know up to a hundred dollars worth of food, which was only being used to suppress uncomfortable emotions. And I'm not dismissing how much in that moment I felt as I needed it, but it just was so saddening to see how much of a grip the eating disorder had um, over me at that stage. So yeah, I mean, I think it's always hard to articulate to people, but I think we can all relate on some level in that we all experience emotions, loneliness, a lack of self-worth at times. And, you know, as I made reference to earlier, that can be characterized through many ways, sometimes through addiction. Um, Sometimes we throw ourselves into a new job and we try and hide all those uncomfortable things. You know, if there's maybe a marital breakup, we'll just instead focus everything on our job to try and dismiss all that other stuff going on. Um, Or we might try to be the funniest one at a party, whatever it might be. We try and hide up our insecurities. And I think for some of us, you know, that just is characterized through an eating disorder. And it is scary, as you say, how much it just grips onto you. And I recall what you said about even the thought of you going to university, even though you were so goal-driven and academic. And then, well, hang on, that's going to interrupt uh, my binging and purging uh, schedule. So maybe we won't look at that. I mean, it's, mm. it's incredible to think that you actually seriously thought, okay, well, no, I'm going to actually choose my eating disorder over having a life. That's right. And, and not just university, of course, you know, it's your social environments. If there was ever a situation that revolved around food, I'd either turn up late and lie about the fact that I'd eaten already, therefore didn't have to eat with them, or I would just not go at all. And so your world becomes incredibly small and this one thing, food, becomes your idol almost and your greatest comforter, but also enemy, you know. And I think that's so important to remember is that um, while in the short term it can reward you for what you think you need, it is never in the long term the solution. That's for sure. What has been, do you think, the most challenging part of your journey? I think, thankfully, we are slowly but surely moving to a place of better understanding of eating disorders and how they're characterised, what they look like, and proper diagnosis by health professionals. Um, For me, I... I struggled to find a voice for myself through my own journey with an eating disorder. Um, I think, and almost because um, I've always been someone who thankfully has been gifted in communications and able to articulate myself, particularly my emotions well, that's a real great thing, but it didn't take away from the emotions I was feeling and the inability to manage my emotions. So while I could talk about everything with health professionals, there was so much pain and destruction internally that wasn't being resolved. So I say that because I feel the challenge I had was actually getting proper treatment through mental health services. Because on the outset, it looked as though I had it all under control. I had great self-awareness and understanding. I'd, Because of my kind of type A personality, I'd studied up about how eating disorders are characterized, why they come about, what you could do to do this, that, and the other. I knew it all from a textbook level, but that didn't mean that my emotions weren't needing to be met, and they weren't, you know, at that stage. So that was a challenge. Um, Look, I think if I'm honest as well, um, being a male, I found it did add stigma, and I say that on the basis of, you know, reading books, reading literature, case studies. A lot of the time, particularly seven or eight years ago, it spoke so much to she or her or a female going through this experience. And that is um, potentially, I don't think we truly understand it well enough yet, but potentially more often the case. However, 
Um, there is still a lot of men who struggle with body dysmorphia or binge eating or overeating or any disorder not otherwise specified or whatever it might be. And I, I, I felt that what that did was it further stigmatized and made me feel like a minority, which again made me feel incredibly uncomfortable about speaking out. And I think health professionals grappled with that too, because when they looked at me, they thought, oh, surely you've got something else going on because just men don't get eating disorders. You know, that's just not happens, which is far from the truth. Men absolutely do get eating disorders. It's so sad that, I mean, I know, look, it's getting better. And that's something I'm so passionate about doing this podcast for is, is to start to quash some of those judgment and that stigma. And more men are coming out and talking about it like you today, because this helps bring it out of the shadows and it helps to show people, hey, there isn't any shame. And there's great power in being vulnerable and speaking out because it empowers others to go, oh, you know what? I, yeah, that's my story too. And to own it. And because there's such power in that. And I think it really, I find it upsetting. I think when you look at the statistics as well, it's like, well, there's probably a lot of men who don't who don't come out and and say that they have an eating disorder. So I don't think those statistics are actually reflective of what, you know, the population actually is um, in terms of, of who is struggling um, from a male perspective. And I think social media as well and just media in general, the, the typical images that are used in articles around eating disorders are that of a thin white female, you know. It's not only mm. just stigmatising against males, but it's also stigmatising against people who suffer from eating disorders other than anorexia. And as I say, I think we are making progress in that respect, but we've got a long way to go. We do have a long way to go, and absolutely. And I think there's something incredibly powerful when people are ready to share their story. And for some people that is like what you and I have done in, in more of a, uh, a media space or outspoken where it's more public, but I think there's just as much power in someone sharing with a close friend or with a family member and uh, or with a colleague, you know, because so many of us have actually experienced very similar things, but we just don't talk about it. Um, Nigel Owens, uh, international rugby referee, yeah, from, um, from the UK, he he spoke up at a BBC panoramic documentary and I had for years been Googling men with eating disorders and finding so few. Beat in the UK does fantastic work in this space and they've got a bunch of case studies of men who have spoken up. But again, I felt I'm on the other side, polar opposite side of the world. I just desperate to find someone I could catch up with for a coffee or just talk to another male on social media perhaps. And when I saw... Nigel Owens, who I could just resonate with so much. You know, he's really into his sport. He's a successful communicator. Um, he's just an everyday bloke, you know. And his obsession with food to the binging and purging behavior, um, it was just so compelling. And I'll never forget, I had never, for the first time in my life, gone from feeling so lonely to being so comforted by someone's story. I then felt compelled here in New Zealand to contact a journalist uh, to share my story. And it was quite remarkable in that I contacted a broadcast journalist here in New Zealand uh, called Jahan Casanada. And uh, I made reference to a, a raft of uh, men who had, who had battled with eating disorders of some kind. And I made reference to Nigel Owen. And it so happened to be that Nigel Owen was staying in a hotel just opposite Television New Zealand, which is where Jahan worked at the time, and was available within the week to do an interview, which kickstarted a documentary here in New Zealand about men grappling with eating disorders, of which featured Nigel and I. And I just think there's something quite special in that, and that, um, 
you know, you think those conversations can start smaller and you have control of where they go. But I just think it, it, it's quite significant when you can share your story. And, you know, off the back of that, I had so many men get in contact with me and, and women who saw themselves and what I thought was such an individual extreme example of an eating disorder. Yet there are so many of us who've gone through very similar things. It doesn't take away from our own pain and struggles with it. But there is something quite special about sharing that burden, sharing experiences and understanding and lessons with each other. Yeah, it's very, very cool. No, I couldn't agree more. The power of lived experience, just it can't be underestimated. And Nigel's incredible. He's actually one of our uh, NDED international ambassadors. And I think it's fantastic. Oh, nice one. Yeah, that people with a a, a real, um, I guess, a public presence when they come out. You know, we've recently seen Freddie Flintoff um, come out and he's doing a documentary on his battle. And I think the more that that happens, the easier it's going to be for people to, to speak up, for it not to be swept under the carpet and get the help that they need when they need it before it's, you know, it's, it's say 10 years down the track and it's so ingrained because when we know how important it is to really get in early before, before more years of your life are spent trapped in, in that beast of an illness. Yeah. And the harsh reality is that, you know, we read of, you know, anorexia nervosa being the most deadly disease among any mental health condition. But it really is, you know, and and I don't need to go in much detail, but it certainly took me to wit's end, you know, where I, I genuinely thought there was no way I was ever going to get my mind back. Um, and I remember there was one year of my life in particular, it was about 2013. I didn't even know who I was anymore. You know, this, this horrific illness had got such a grip that Luke, who I had so much hope for at one stage and so so much potential in just felt like this robot that was just dictated by eating and spending all his money on food that's all i did and and all the kind of the qualities that i added to relationships and friends and family were just being stripped of me and i remember seriously contemplating taking my own life and and it doesn't need to get to that, you know? We do not need to lose people to this disease. There is definitely hope. One thing that was really significant for me, because I think with eating disorders, you do go through a phase for lots of people where, you know, you really do struggle to see those those good aspects of yourself, particularly when your behaviour day-to-day is, is not something that you're maybe proud of. In my final year of high school, which is, you know, some time ago now, but we, on our final, final day, we wrote on these post-it notes, the qualities that we valued in other people. So there was a bunch of envelopes all over the floor with people's names on them. So Luke Chivers for me and, you know, Sally, whoever it is over there. And we were all given post-it notes and we could write down qualities about each of our classmates that we really valued. Some of them were more heartfelt, some of them were quite lighthearted and quite funny and personal jokes. And you could go around the room and slot them in these envelopes confidentially before you finished for the year and before you wrapped up as, as a class together. You know, I thought at the time, this is quite a cool little initiative, but I just kept them tucked away in a shoebox, didn't see them for years and years and years. But I stumbled across them when I was going through recovery and it couldn't have been more poignant in that they were just this true testament of what people saw in me that in that stage of my life, I could not see myself. And I would literally read them every night before I went to bed. And, you know, it was speaking to qualities of being funny or caring, kind, 
a true leader, you know, whatever it might be. And those were things which I didn't feel as though I was characterizing at that stage of my life, but I once did. And if I once did, then I can again. It sounds silly, but it was so crucial for me because they it was just truth that I could rely on because my brain at that stage was not giving me what I needed. So I, I do think, you know, if people are listening and they're struggling, I, I'd encourage them to get some some tools like that in place where they can refer back to true examples of who they actually are. And that won't come about overnight, you know. I went through many health professionals and a lot of hard yards, but you can get there. In fact, you know, it was funny. I was even saying to a friend recently, I said, um, man, I wish I wasn't so empathetic because then you feel things so much. But at the same time, it is such an awesome thing. And I jokingly say that, but feeling... And I think a lot of people then disorders do, and that's why we kind of get caught up in some of these challenges at times. Feeling is such a special thing. It really is, because then you feel the absolute highs in life, but yes, you feel the lows, but that is living. And it's it's a really, really cool thing when you can do that in a healthy way, you know, and there's a way to do that. Absolutely. I, I can completely relate to that because that, that deep, deep level of empathy can be quite hard to sort of manage it sometimes when you do care so deeply. I loved what you said before about, you know, you get to that point where you didn't feel like you'd ever get your brain back. And that's that was exactly how I felt. And also when you've got professionals telling you that, well, that's something that you'll have to manage for the rest of your life and your brain will always sort of operate like mm. that. Um, but to know that you can have freedom and know that there is hope is so, so important. And that's why it's important to speak up and show people like, hey, you you can do this. Um, and I think also what you said about, you know, your values and who you are as a person, that was something that was incredibly formative for me in my recovery to really mm-hmm. go, okay, these are Millie's values. This is my eating disorders values. And because you, you become one and the mm-hmm. same when you're in it, it just sort of feels like, okay, is this who I am as a person? Um, and I love that you've got that envelope of, uh, of what people had, had seen in you to be able to refer back to and go, you know what, this is me at my core. And I can get back to that because, you know, our soul self is always there throughout the journey, even though sometimes it just, feels so completely suppressed and consumed by the eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important in the in the good days to write down some of those things because it's, it's in the bad days when we don't see them. And it's, it's so crucial to look back on. You know, I still have the envelope to this day. In fact, I think I'll hold on to it potentially through the rest of my life because it's just, it's, so, it's been so significant for me. I guess as well, I just want to say like one thing I really struggled with when I was, when I was battling was feeling weak you know it was feeling as though I was powerless and there was this horrific thing in control of me which yes there was an element of lack of control but one thing I actually did start to take hope from is that people who tend to suffer from eating disorders have so much resilience you know made reference to the resilience and this um, nature of our bodies but your mind is so resilient to keep pursuing life even though you're battling with an eating disorder. Like it is so hard to get up every day, get out of bed, have a shower, put clothes on, you know, face the world when you're grappling with an eating disorder. And for some people, whether it's turning up to school or turning up to work or whatever it might be, that's a real challenge. But at the same time, that resilience is what exactly can fuel you in your recovery. And because I think we 
we dismiss how much strength we actually have through doing what we might see as mundane things. But actually, someone's ability at times to put food in their mouth when everything within their body is telling them not to, that is incredible strength. It's, it's, it's actually quite remarkable. And, and I think what's really cool is when people come out the other side, they can actually do far greater things than they might have ever thought. And that doesn't have to be what other people might perceive as big and influential. But for some people, it's within the most grassroots stuff where you see these awesome traits of yourself come out because you've, you've gone through the war and you can use all that strength from the past to, to catapult you forward. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Couldn't agree more. And I, I think too, it's important to recognize that, as you say, it doesn't have to be what other people perceive as being big or influential or important. It can be things that mean something to you and things that you, you know, you've wanted to do and to be able to really, you know, I, I remember when I, it switched for me from using the determination um, and sort of stubbornness in a way that I had channeled into holding on to my eating disorder and really doing that really, really well to channeling it into to life and that determination into recovery, um, that was really when things started to change because you have that determination there. It's just about how are you going to use it? Where are you going to channel it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. But look, um, I think, you know, I definitely should say that um, I did have really, really good support. So if, I guess for people who are listening, if they haven't spoken up about it, I'd really encourage them to talk to someone they trust for me, that was a really close family member of mine at the start. And when I was ready, I spoke to good friends about it. Um, and that was really, really important. And coupling that just as important is, is engaging with proper support through proper treatment. Um, here in New Zealand, you know, you can engage in the mental health system through um, local hospitals, and they do offer some pretty good services through that. And I think that's a fantastic first start. You know, we've Eating Disorders Association of New Zealand and various options. Not many people can afford private, of course, but there are many publicly funded, you know, treatment options available, which is great. And, of course, Voices of Hope. Um, have some fantastic resources, which I know you're you're partly involved in, or have good friends there. But definitely, definitely speak up. You know, I, I genuinely wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for, and I really mean that. You know, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for engaging in proper support. And there's no shame in that. You know, that's it's an awesome thing. To this day, I still see someone from time to time, a clinical psychologist really just to keep myself in check. And I have no shame in that these days. I'm, I'm quite open about it with my work. I've got to go to a CSL, you know. And um, and it's not that I'm in crisis. You know, we have regular catch-ups with our dentist or our doctor. We should treat the exact same with our mental health. Oh, I think that's fantastic. And it, look, it takes a village. Eating disorder recovery takes a village. Uh, and, and it's so important to have that really good team around you. And I always say, look, if, if you try it, well, you know, one clinician and it just doesn't work, don't give up there. Try someone else. You'll find someone that you can be vulnerable and raw with and open up. Someone that you feel listens to you, someone that gets you. And I think that's what's really, really important. I went to a number of clinicians until I found that one that really dived deep and and went, hang on, you haven't addressed this. And actually, we're going to pull this one out too. And you're going to have to face it if you really want to get well. And they're not afraid to challenge you. And they can run ring, rings yeah. around your eating disorder rather than your eating disorder running rings around the clinician. 
That's absolutely, absolutely right. And, um, and we all deserve the best. And I think that's exactly what you just really said. You know, don't give up if you feel as though you're not being heard properly or dismissed, um, whether that's your GP, psychologist, whoever it might be, or even family and friends, you know, keep pursuing because you do deserve the best. But absolutely, and I think that's a really important part of treatment is being able to separate your thinking from who you really are because what your mind might be telling you is, is actually not always your true self. And it's really good to separate it. You know, some people actually name it um, something, don't they? And then it's almost a way of completely characterizing it as something else, which is, I think, quite a healthy thing to do. If you could say what, like, if you could name one thing that you think was the most valuable thing that you got out of, out of battling your eating disorder, what would it be? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think the biggest thing for me this is quite a high level one, but it, it, it's been the thing that which I have to remind myself of. I am worthy of love and acceptance regardless of what I achieve. Like just by me being me, um, on my good days, my bad days, whether I'm excelling in my career and friendships or whether I'm not, or whether I'm made redundant today, I am still worthy of love and acceptance. And that to me is the biggest thing. And that's been the biggest thing to me getting well is realizing that while all these external things are cool, great things to do, and it's nice that I find fulfillment in them, they don't define me. You know, my friends don't hang out with me because of my job or because I maybe run 10Ks at a certain time. And if they do, that is very, very sad, but they don't. They hang out with me because they love the qualities which I have and just because of who I am. And that's all they'd ever want, you know? Um, we're only ever really our hardest critic. Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest thing for me. And I do occasionally have to really remind myself of that, you know? Um, if things aren't going the way I want them to go in various ways. Just me for being me is, is enough. Yeah. In fact, it's more than enough. And it's so important that our worth isn't attached to those things. It isn't attached to <clears throat> career accolades, to relationships, to number on the scale, to how many kilometres you've run. It it just isn't. Our worth is, you know, is something that can never be taken away away from us and it's not attached to any of those things. What, what about for you? Is there... Is there anything that was so key for you in, in your recovery? For me, it was knowing that I could be free. Like knowing after all these years of being told that I wouldn't survive, that I would, you know, oh, I wouldn't make it to the age of 30 or I'd be in a wheelchair or you, you'll always have to manage it. This is just how your brain's going to be. You're too severe and enduring and, you know, Everybody said that and and that's not, that it, it, it wasn't the case. And I think for me, it's just knowing that you can achieve whatever you set your mind to achieve. So knowing, being empowered by uh, my therapist, she said to me, if you want to change your brain, you can change your brain. So that's something that I hold with me to this day. And it's what I tell other people who are feeling like they are just devoid of any hope. And that is why I'm so passionate about what I do is because I want to spread that message of hope that no matter what, you can recover. It doesn't matter how long or how hard you've struggled with. And I sound like a broken record because I say that all the time, but it's so true. You can fully recover. You don't have to sit in pseudo recovery. You can make it out the other side and live a life, a really full life free from your eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Just lastly, 
I want to ask you to share some words of wisdom with our listeners who are still going through, you know, the battle, the war, as you called it. What do you Mm. want to say to them? What's your message to them? I think by, by far number one would be you're not alone and you might think that your particular scenario is just so bad or so different, you know, you've suffered so long or in such a way that you'll never get better, but that is a lie and you are so worthy and capable with help around you to get well and live a really fulfilling, meaningful life and don't give up. And that might literally be promising yourself that you're going to get through another hour or another day or another week. Just keep moving forward because before you know it, you'll look back and you'll have made great runs on the board. But that just comes with time. I'd really encourage people to speak up where they can. It's never comfortable, but it is so worth it. When you start to speak up with people who trust, who get you, who are able to just be with you, your friends or family might not have any of the answers you're seeking, but just speaking and being with those around you who love you is so important. And just that there's hope, you know? Um, I totally know that feeling of feeling as though you're never going to get there, that you're going to be that statistic or that story in the local paper, whatever it might be. In preparation for our chat today, you know, I read back over the fact that I, for years, couldn't make dinner, you know, or that I was being sick so often. You know, I used to put detergent all over my food and then wash it off and still eat it. And that, to me now, is so hard to comprehend. And I guess because I lived by those three things, you know, I really didn't. I allowed myself to reach out to others. Um, As time went on, I I sought that hope. Um, And I had people who loved me who reminded me that I wasn't alone. It's just so, so important. So those have been my most big takeaways for me. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough, Luke. You are absolutely incredible and you are literally this beacon of hope everything that you have said has just been amazing and i know that people are going to listen to this and they're going to take so much from it um especially especially men um or boys who are who are battling because i think that is can be so as you said you can feel so lonely um, and feel like, you know, you're different uh, somehow. But, you know, we, we are all in this together. As you said, there is so much hope. And thank you for, for shining a light on that today. Thanks so much. Well, look, it's been really good to be on the show. There is hope at endad.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU. Customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media Production.